Well, good morning, Exchange. As Jesse uh, kind of alluded to, and the sign behind me, we're in Summer of Psalms. Uh, today, we've got five weeks uh, where we're picking up from last summer. Uh, so we're in Psalm chapter 59 today. So if you want to turn there, uh, also if you use your device, uh, if you use the, the uh, Church Center app, uh, there's a place on the home screen uh, that will uh, just says sermon notes. You press that button and it takes you to a spot where uh, all the passages that we use today are referenced. Those will stay up for a week. And so you can uh, kind of research that, go back at home, look through it, make sure what I'm saying is in line with Scripture. And so there's a line in um, A Mighty Fortress. The, the, whole, the whole song really takes a minute to uh, to. I almost decompress and to look at a little bit of a different linguistic form, right? Have you seen this? Like you've sung it before, you know the melody, uh, you know how it goes. It's a great familiar song. And then at some point you look at the words and you're like, oh, that's what it's talking about. You know? I don't know if you've caught this. You hear the words that we sing, nothing comes close to you, right? Nothing compares to you. A mighty fortress. A mighty fortress. And then he talks about that, that last verse that Jesse had us repeat. He says, you know, one, one, from one word from you uh, will fell him. And that word indicates it's, it's like felling a tree. It's what they call it when you cut a tree down. It fell. So if you think about this for one second, you, you think about this this lyric that says, you're fighting for us. A mighty fortress is our God. And one word fells the enemy. It defeats the enemy. It's not like this mighty oak that Christ is sitting there chopping that one day he'll finally get through. He's not sweating. His face is not red. He whispers and the enemy is finished. It's like one of those trees that, that's dead already. You seen this? It's dead already, and it's loose in the soil. There's no roots, and you just kind of go over and push it down. That's the imagery that I get when I sing this song, is that, that, that Christ has already won. He's already finished. He's fighting for us. What does that mean? Does it mean that he's got a sword, and he's sweating, and he's cut up, and all of these things? I think it's not necessarily that he's fighting against the enemy for us. He's fighting for us. Longing for our attention, our trust, for us to know that he has already won the battle against the enemy. And so I think when we really believe this, Psalm 59 sits differently with us. It looks different. When we come across a place in our life where the enemy is, is bearing down on us and we need to believe that he is a mighty fortress, nothing comes close to him, that he's fighting for us, that one word from him will fell him, the enemy, Psalm 59 speaks to this directly. So I'm going to invite you to read it with me and then we're going to dig in to the text. Uh, David is speaking here. As we've said uh, before in some of our Psalms, uh, Psalms is filled with uh, lots of different authors, um, lots of different scenarios. Uh, there's, there's places in here 
where we can identify uh, with uh, when, when we have victories, when we face difficulties, when there's trials and triumphs, uh, when our emotions and our minds have us absolutely spinning, when we're certain on certain things. And so here, David is praying a prayer of deliverance, uh, and he is uh, asking God to deliver him, to rescue him. And he says this, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. And set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my, tresion, my, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and take their stand against me. Stir yourself up to help me and see. You, Lord God of armies, the God of Israel, awake to punish all of the nations. Do not be gracious to anyone who, who deals treacherously in wrongdoing. And then he uses this word, selah, stop, pause, meditate, let it sink in. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they prowl around like the city, and behold, they gush forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they see who hears but you, Lord. You laugh at them. You scoff at all of the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my refuge. My God and his faithfulness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my enemies. Don't kill them or people will forget. Instead, scatter them by your power and bring them down. Lord, our shield. On account of their sin and the mouths of their words of their lips, may they even be caught in their pride. And on account of the curses and the lies which they tell, destroy them in wrath. Destroy them so that they will no longer exist so that the people may know that God rules in Jacob. To the ends of the earth, Selah, stop, pause, meditate. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and prowl around the city. They wander about for food and murmur if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I will sing of your strength. Yes, I will joyfully sing of your faithfulness in the morning, for you have been my refuge. And a place of refuge on the day of my distress. My strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my refuge, the God who shows me favor. It's clear from the first line of this psalm uh, what the prayer is about. It's a prayer for rescue. You probably have uh, a story of a time in your life where maybe uh, you can think of your circumstance where you needed to rescue, uh, to be rescued. Maybe you rescued someone. Maybe you immediately think of a superhero. Maybe uh, for some reason the iconic Superman always comes up. And maybe you have a story where you helped someone else in a time of need. Maybe not from death, but maybe pulling them out of a ditch. Maybe uh, you saved them from a disaster. Maybe you gave them a piece of clothing, uh, clothing when their pants ripped and they had to go to an event. Uh, maybe you had to be the one rescued. I think whatever it is for you, it's a concept we often understand. We know what it's like to desperately need help. And sometimes we're in a place where without someone stepping in and intervening, we're doomed. We have no hope. We don't have a prayer. 
We need someone to do something. And so for David, the circumstance seems really, really bleak here. There's people circling around him, literally wanting to kill him. And it seems like his enemies are circling like a pack of killer whales. You see this seal perched up on this little patch of ice, and the killer whales are circling. And that's the scenario where David finds himself. He has no place to go. There's no hope. There's no boat. There's no nothing for him to hide. There's nowhere to go. Only his enemies are there, and he's crying out for the Lord. No way out. Luckily, the description of the psalm gives us the exact circumstance that David was writing this in and for. If you look at your passage, it probably says something like this, a prayer for rescue from enemies. That's clear. From the music director said to Adaseth, a Mechum of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So a very specific circumstance that David is writing in here. And the story isn't vague or obscure. It comes from 1 Samuel. Not long after David kills Goliath, uh, the people of Israel regarded him as a hero and rescuer. He stepped in when the people of Israel literally had no hope. They were lined up against the Philistines. They far outnumbered them. They far outweighed them in terms of their size, their stature, their ability. David steps in. You probably know this story. With the help of God, he uses a slingshot, defeats this giant. They go running, and now Israel is moving and pushing forth. Uh, You can imagine the people of Israel, when they see David walk by, they look at him differently, especially when their king was in his tent, scared to death. This wasn't the the last victory that David had. He had another. Uh, Saul sent him out once again against the Philistines. David uh, defeats many of them, thousands of them. And they write a song about David comparing him to King Saul. It goes a little like this in 1 Samuel 18, 7. I'm going to ask Jesse to make a melody up for this so that we can sing this next week, right? And the women sang to one another. They celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his is ten thousands. It's probably there's probably a catchy tune that we can come up with this. Can you imagine what this was like for Saul? Not just people singing, but all the women, right? I mean, the scripture gives us this indication that David is just adored, and it's like this superhero coming in, and he's walking. And the thing about David is he's not uh, cocky and arrogant. He's humble. He's a fierce warrior. He's a poet. I mean, he does literally everything. And so the people of Israel look at him and say, this is the guy. You can imagine that Saul is absolutely ravaged with jealousy. At some point, David is fearful for his life. He goes away. Jonathan, David's uh, Saul's son, is a friend of David. And he says, okay, I'm going to intervene for your sake. I'm going to step in and talk to my father. So he talks to his father, Saul. And he says, listen, Dad, David's done nothing to you. He's no threat to you. He's only helped your kingdom. He only wants to be a part of your kingdom, your throne, what what you're doing. He's not going to do anything. He's never harmed you. Don't harm him. So Saul swears an oath to Jonathan. Okay, you're right. I'm not going to do anything to David. Here's where the story picks up. So Jonathan goes to David and says, David, you're safe. My father has sworn that he's going to do nothing to you. Come back into the palace. 
So David's there playing the harp. <laughs> the next place, First uh, Samuel 19, verse 10, it says, And Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he escaped from Saul's presence. So they struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night, and Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Listen to this. In order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter, informed him, saying, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. So think about this scenario where David literally has escaped an assassination attempt from the king. He's now hiding out in his house with the king's daughter, who he's married to. And she has told him, David, I, I know my father's plan. If you don't leave tonight, he's going to kill you in the morning. And while they're talking about this, there's men watching their house to make sure he stays put so that they can put him to death in the morning. And it's not just any enemy. It's the king. There's no higher authority that David can appeal to. He cannot call the police, the Coast Guard, you know, somebody to intervene in this scenario. He has no hope. This is literally the highest authority in the land is after his life. He's powerless against them. Who's he to stand up against Saul and his army? And David knows that McCall is right. If he stays here, he will be killed. If he tries to escape, where, he's, where is he going to go? Where is it that he can run to that Saul's men will not find him and chase him down? He's buried beneath the weight of his circumstance and desperately needs God to step in and rescue him, to deliver him. So I think before we get back to this passage... The enemy, I would suspect, is cleverly trying to tell you that this passage is irrelevant to you. That there hasn't been a place in your life where you look out the window and see enemies circling your house. I would venture to say that most of us in this room have not faced that scenario. And even still... Uh, as unlikely as it may be in our future, it's so unrealistic that we could ever even imagine what that's like. Maybe to look out our window and see it like real enemies, real men with weapons waiting and lurking to take our life in the morning. But I would venture to say that most of us know what it's like for our enemies to circle us. To destroy us. The enemy circling outside of you may be your health, your actual physical health. It may be something that's plaguing you and something that you can't stop thinking about. It may be something that keeps you up at night. It may be something that worries you, frightens you, steals the joy from your life. It may be something that has real and fatal consequences. The enemy may be circling outside of you with your mental health. The enemy circling outside of your mind right now may be fear and anxiety. Maybe it's depression. You can't shake it. And it seems as if there's this real circumstance of something literally circling you, waiting to destroy you. 
Maybe the enemy's circling outside of your marriage. Your relationship with your parents or your children or someone else that's literally suffocating. Maybe the enemy's circling outside of your finances. Maybe the enemy's circling uh, around your dashed hopes and dreams of life that you wanted but isn't in the picture. We may not know what it's like to see people circling outside our home, but I bet that if you've been alive for very long, you know what it's like for the enemy to circle. And he knows just where to find us, doesn't he? He knows the place that causes fear and angst, worry and doubt. He knows the places in our life that actually concern us. Have you ever looked at someone else and maybe you've seen their, or maybe they've talked about their enemies circling you and you think to yourself, that's no big deal. Why why are you worried about that? Because that's not your enemy. And and then you have this other thing that maybe someone else might look at and say, hey, it's it's okay, man. You'll get through it. You'll get over it. It, It'll just be this hurdle. We can do this, right? But it's all-consuming. You know why? Because the enemy knows you. It says that he literally schemes about how to destroy you. Schemes. He plots and plans. It's like a math equation to him. How am I going to destroy him? And he looks for that little window, the little place that literally will destroy you. And so David is here with physical enemies, and he says this. This is what he prays, and I think his prayers will push us uh, of how to pray when our enemies are circling around. He says this, rescue me from my enemies, my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Rescue me from those who practice injustice and save me uh, from men of bloodshed. Behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men attack me, not for my wrongdoing nor for my sin, Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and they take their stand against me. Stir yourself to help me and see. You, Lord God of armies, The God of Israel, awake and punish the nations. Do not be gracious to any who deal treacherously in wrongdoing. Selah. Stop, pause, meditate. Notice the last words of David here. I think David is invoking the character and the position of God. He's crying out to him because of who he is and what he's capable of. It reminds me of when Jesus is walking on the water and allowing Peter to come after him as well. Do you remember the story? Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, Peter responded to him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you into the water. And Jesus said to him, come, right? So Jesus grants him permission to literally walk on the water, to defy gravity, physics and all of the things right so Peter gets out of the boat he walks on water and he comes towards Jesus but seeing the wind he became frightened and when he began to sink he cries out to who he cries out is very important Lord save me honestly I don't know if if I'm Peter and the boat's not far from me and I start sinking I may cry for a rope I may ask for the other disciples to throw me some help, for someone to 
Throw me something that I can grab onto, that I can latch onto, that I can use to save myself. Instead, I think Peter realizes the one who gave him the permission to do this in the first place is the one who will save him. He cries out the Lord to help. In this circumstance, David is appealing to the God of armies, the God of Israel. Saul is the king of Israel, but the Lord is the God of Israel. He's appealing to a higher authority. He's invoking who God is and inviting him into our circumstance. So here's, I think, the first step, is that when, when we are being circled by our enemy, no matter what it is, acknowledge who God is and invite him into your circumstance. Acknowledge who God is and invite him into that circumstance. I think... Um, if you remember the story of Job, God forces this conversation when Job's circumstance is far from ideal or comforting. He's lost everything. He starts to question and he starts to question what, what's happening, like why is this happening to me, all the things, the things that we would certainly question. Notice what God says in Job chapter 38, verse 4. He says this, Job, where were you? First, I love this. The introduction to this is essentially, Job, gird your loins. I'm going to ask a question, and you will answer me. Right? That's like the, the scriptural version. Uh, the, the today version is, Job, put your big boy pants on. We're about to go a few rounds. Right? And he says this, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Who sets its measurements, since you know? Or stretched the line out on it? Or where was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you, Job? This goes on for two chapters. I mean, it's incredible. Here's what God is saying to Job. Since you have all the questions and you seem to have all the answers, what you need to do is you need to acknowledge who I am and who you're not. I am the creator of the world, the one who spoke it into existence. And so when your problems, specifically with Job, are health and family and safety and security, like Satan just goes after him in all of the ways. God is saying, why don't you acknowledge who I am, Job, and ask me into your circumstance? I think so often we just try to fight and wiggle our way through the circumstance, find a way around the circumstance. But maybe when God is saying, when we sing these words, he's fighting for us, maybe he's fighting for our holiness. Maybe he's fighting for our sanctification. And instead of wanting to go through it, he's wanting around it, he's wanting us to go through it with him. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. You're literally leading me through that place. So we acknowledge who God is and we invite him into our circumstance. I wonder what would happen if we forced our minds and our hearts, our souls to acknowledge God's position and authority over the enemy that circles us before we get up in the morning. 
How would that change our day? You, you know what I mean, right? You, you know what I mean. Maybe, uh, maybe for you, the enemy is, is a dis, in, in the distance. And so maybe for you, the enemy starts circling when your alarm clock goes off. And you're awakened by, you know, the, the time and the place that you chose to. But as soon as you wake up, the, those worries and the cares of the world, the enemies that are circling you are there. Maybe for you, the enemy is a little bit closer. And you don't choose when you wake up, the enemy does, by the sound of its footsteps. I, I bet many in this room have been there when at 3 a.m., it sounds like the marching soldiers circling. I wonder what would happen at that moment instead of listening and being dr like so drowned by the sound of the enemy's footsteps, we acknowledged who God was and invited him into that moment. Maybe with health. We wake up because we have a doctor's appointment, a really, really important one. We can't sleep. And so maybe at that moment we say, God, I acknowledge that you are the giver of life. That you literally formed man out of the dust of the ground. And with one word, you control everything in my body. That changes the conversation. It literally changes the conversation. It forces our hearts in a place. It doesn't mean it alleviates any stress. It doesn't mean that we don't worry. It just simply means that we're literally giving over our enemies to God in that moment. We're saying, God, the enemy is circling around me. I, have, I, have, I literally can't do anything about this, but you can. You can. What do it look like to invite God into those places, into those moments where the enemy is too heavy for us? There, I bet you there have been nights where I bet I've, I've prayed and recited Psalm 23 hundreds of times. Because the enemy is so close, I can feel him. And in that moment, when I, when I don't know what to pray, I pray Psalm 23, I remind myself, Lord, you, you are my shepherd. You are my shepherd. The enemy is not my shepherd. I'm not going to follow him. He's not going to lead me. I will choose to follow you. So we command our thoughts, we command our emotions, we command our spirit to trust in a God because we invite him into our circumstance. So David acknowledges what's happening too. I think the real trouble and how it makes him feel, the fear that he has and also the injustice that he feels. He's, he's honest with the absurdity of his circumstance. I think this is maybe where we, we don't get this right sometimes. I think sometimes we say step one, right? Like just, just pray and recite a verse and it'll all be better. Right? And it just, it's, I think that's naive sometimes, most often, where we just refuse to acknowledge our the real difficulty of our circumstance. And David does this here. He says, they return at evening, they howl like a dog, they prowl around the city. Behold, they gush forth with their mouths, the swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? 
but you, Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. And because of his strength, literal translation could be, in fact, most uh, of the earlier manuscripts say, because of my strength, my strength, David's talking about himself here, I will watch for you. Not meaning his own strength, but because of where he draws his strength from. Because of my strength and my trust in you, I will watch for you. God is my refuge. And my God in his faithfulness, he will meet me. I think this is, uh, this is what I would press in on you today. Difficult circumstances are not cause to doubt the Lord. They're an opportunity to lean into his faithfulness. Difficult circumstances are not the moment where we begin to doubt the Lord and question. Those difficult circumstances are literally the places and the times where we lean into his prior faithfulness. David is sure. My God and his faithfulness will meet me. There's, there's a confidence. I love it how he writes here. There's a confidence that it's, it's like it oozes out of him. Some may say it's forced. Some may call him overly optimistic. I honestly think that it's spirit-led. Sometimes we have to simply command our souls and force ourselves to lean into the proven faithfulness of God. I often, too, have to do this and have to remind myself of the things that God has stepped in to protect me from. So when I'm tempted to think that he's simply withholding something from me, I realign my thoughts and believe that he's protecting me from something. So maybe in this circumstance, it's a good opportunity for you to journal and record what God is doing. Look for an opportunity at the end of the day to write down something in some way that you saw the hand of God move. When you're going through this difficult circumstance, when the enemy's circling, why not? Why not begin a new journal for that season? Say, God, I, I, I literally, I'm, I'm believing that I'm going to look back on this one day and see your hand move, and I want to just record it. Why not place this new journal in, in, your, in your car, in your bag, and start to write down all the ways that you see God's hand move? You'll need it for a greater battle one day. You remember the story of David? I mean, he didn't wake up one morning never testing the faithfulness of God and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go against Goliath. No, he met the bear in the wilderness first, and then a lion, and then Goliath, and then the army of the Philistines, and then all of Israel, I mean, over and over and over and over. It was as if every single moment that David decided to choose to believe in the faithfulness of God, his faith in God leveled up. Another one, another one, another one. Why not? Why not dedicate ourselves to recording the faithfulness of God? Maybe in this circumstance, it's a good opportunity to start. I think David looks honestly at God. He looks honestly at his proven faithfulness, but I think he looks honestly at himself as well. And I think this is really important. This is a really big step. I think when we're facing difficulty, um, I, I, I would not skip this step. 
Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, because of no guilt of my own. Because of no guilt of my own. David is, is confident that he's innocent in this matter. I think this is important. He knows and believes within his heart that he's innocent here. Not completely innocent, not without sin. David is not righteous. But in this case, he knows the will of God and he knows that he is not in sin. This is an important thing. Because it shapes what he prays. Notice verse 11. Keep in mind, verse 4, because of no guilt of my own. David then prays, he says, don't kill them or people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, may they even be caught in their pride. And on account of the curses which lies that they tell, destroy them in wrath, destroy them so that they will no longer exist. Listen to this, so that the people may know that God rules in Jacob and to the ends of the earth. Selah, stop, pause, meditate, right? So what is David doing here? He says he knows that he's innocent. He knows that in this moment, this circumstance is not because of his sin, right? And so then he invokes the glory of God, which I think is really, really important because when we are living in the will of God, our circumstance intersects with the glory of God. When we're living in the will of God, our circumstance intersects with the glory of God. You have to think through this for a second. I think sometimes and often believers face extreme difficult things because we're living outside of the will of God. Because we're choosing our fleshly desires, we're choosing to seek after those things. We might be choosing to go around God's will for our lives, and so we suffer the natural consequences of that. You can probably guess and remember um, how this would play out in Israel as they were leaving Egypt, entering the promised land. They could not pray this prayer here. In this moment, Israel, in the moment against the Philistines, against the nations, against all the things, Israel could not pray, God, because we've trusted you, because we're faithful to you, because we're living in your will, uh, we know that this, is, this, this enemy is against us. Like, th that's not true. They were, they were bowing down to idols that they had formed uh, out of the gold that God had provided for them to come out of Egypt. All of the things, right? They couldn't pray this prayer. There's a, there's a peace that comes over us when we're able to pray this prayer of God, I know my heart here. I'm seeking after you. I know that this circumstance is not because I'm, I'm running away from you. I find myself in this circumstance while I'm running to you. And so God, for your glory, would you, would you do something? It changes our prayers. It changes our prayers when we know that we are not in sin. I think sometimes we don't like to talk about this 
And, and this is not necessarily the opposite of the prosperity gospel. I think Jesse alluded to this today. I think sometimes maybe we don't say these things out loud, but we do believe if we just live good, then everything will be good. And if we're like bad little boys and girls, then, then bad things will happen to us. But often in the Psalms, David prays, why do the wicked prosper? It doesn't always align like that. But when we know our heart is right before God, there's a special peace that comes about in that circumstance where we say, God, I know that this circumstance is not because I'm outside of your will. That's not because I'm running from you. It's not because of all of these things. So I need to wait to see you. It's kind of like you stop at this four-way stop and you stop and sometimes you pull it over and put it in park and say, until you come and until I see what you're doing, I'm not moving. So David actually prays sometimes. He says, God, would you search my heart? Would you show me the places that I'm not aware of? David actually invokes this place for us to say, this is, I'm asking you to do something for us. And then he says this again. He says, they return at evening, they howl like a dog, they prowl around like the city, they wander about for food, they murmur if they're not satisfied. But as for me, I'll sing of your strength. Yes, I will joyfully sing of your faithfulness in the morning. For you have been my refuge and a place of refuge on the day of distress. My strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my refuge, the God who shows me favor. I think... Here's the last point. In confusion, we can command our soul to worship because of his proven love and protection over us. Sometimes we just simply have to command our thoughts and command our soul to worship. And it gives us enough fuel for that day. Notice what David says again. He says, I will sing. My strength, who I will put my faith in. It's as if David is commanding his soul to believe and to trust and to hope in God. I wonder if your enemies are circling because you haven't called out. I wonder sometimes if those enemies are circling because we literally have not taken the help that God provides for us. There's an interesting story uh, reporting in a, in a backpack magazine, uh, and they write that you can get a cell phone signal on the highest mountain of Colorado. If you get lost uh, hiking that mountain, you should probably answer your phone, even if you don't recognize the number. That's the message being spread by the Lake County Search and Rescue, which tried to help a lost hiker on Mount Elbert after sending out search teams and reported, uh, repeatedly calling uh, her phone to no avail. The hiker spent all night on the side of a mountain before finally reaching safety. Uh, one notable takeaway is that the subject ignored repeated calls literally all night long because they did not recognize the number. 
The hiker set out at 9 o'clock a.m. on a route that normally takes seven hours to complete round trip. And a caller alerted a search and rescue team at about 8 p.m. And a five-person team stayed in the field looking for the hiker all night long. When the team suspended the search the next morning, uh, more searchers hit the mountain the next day. And then the hiker appeared, having finally made it back to their car. They got disoriented in an ordeal that lasted more than 24 hours that could have been solved very quickly had they just answered the call. And I wonder for us in the circumstance when the enemy is circling around us, maybe we're lost, maybe we're confused, maybe we're disoriented by the circumstance that life has us in at this moment. And I wonder if the call, this scripture saying, come to me, come to me, come to me, come to me. And for many of us, that seems like a distant and maybe a, a not familiar call. Come to you, or just work harder and create a little side hustle so that I can overcome this financial thing. Or come to you and just ignore like this relational crisis. Come to you, or I can just literally just kind of just go about my day and pretend it's not happening. God says, how about come to me? But answer my call. I just wonder how often the enemy continues to circle around simply because we have not called on the one who is calling to us. Come to me. All who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for these passages that remind us that when our circumstances seem bleak and it feels like we're defeated before our feet ever hit the floor, that we're not alone. People you used mightily cry out to you in fear, but with faith. So, Lord, I, I pray that this would press us to you. That you would teach us what it's like to, to seek you in these circumstances where the enemy circles around us. To wait for you, to have confidence in you, to, to remember your faithfulness to us. Lord, I pray for the ones in the room right now who the enemy is circling around that they're overwhelmed. Lord, would you fight for them today? As we reflect and respond on your word, Lord, I pray that you would help us to wait and to call for you. Maybe if that's you today, exchange, if, if the enemy's circling in a way that you just need someone to pray for you, to call out for you, we would love to invite you to the back. Or we have trained prayer partners to, to, to just sit with you for a second and to pray with you over whatever is heavy on your heart in this moment. 
Maybe it's just someone coming alongside of you and reminding you of the promises of God. We would invite you to that. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us even still. Remind us of your goodness and faithfulness to us. That's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.